I invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one, to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be talking about Jesus and the mission of God. We're entering into these three really exciting parables that Jesus spoke. Uh, three lost things. We have a lost sheep, we have a lost coin, and we're going to, next week we're going to start talking about the lost son. Now we can set the stage for something like this with maybe, maybe this kind of thought, that there is nothing more grieving than, than losing something or someone that you love dearly. And we've all experienced something like that, at least on a smaller level, maybe on a larger level. On October 6, 2002, 11-year-old Sean Hornback was vanished without a trace. He was riding his mountain bike to his friend's house in Kirkland, Michigan. His parents, Craig and Pamela Hornback, began to search for him. They put together search teams. They plastered pictures all over town. As the days rolled on, the search team grew and grew, and before you knew it, it was dozens, maybe even hundreds of volunteers, at least out kind of keeping their eyes open in the community. They enlisted dog-sniffing teams to try to track the scent. There's nothing more grieving than losing something you love. And after about a month or two of searching, the volunteers lost hope. The police considered it a cold case, and the community all but forgot the name Sean Hornbeck. But the parents would not let go. The parents went to desperate measures. They even employed Sylvia Brown, the psychic that was on TV at the time, who told the parents that, stop looking for your son, for your son is dead. But the love of the parents just held out hope. The father in particular took great measures to search for his son. Quit his full-time job, depleted his savings, borrowed against the home, giving everything up in order to recover and restore that which was lost. And that search would go on for four years. Four years later, 41-year-old Michael Devlin was arrested. He snatched the boy and tried to pass him off as his own son. And had been doing that for four years. Hornbeck was alive, Sean, the young boy. He was in good health. He was missing. And I can imagine what that call was like when a Kirkland PD called the mother and father and said, we have your son down here at the police station. Why don't you come down and meet him and get him? <laughs> Must have been an amazing scene. Gasping to catch their breath, throwing their arms in the air. The son was thought to be dead, and now he's alive. And it reminds me of verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive. He's lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. That's what we're talking about. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. The teaching here is linked. It's not only lost things, but there's major celebration that takes place in all three. And yet the missing link here is, versus the story I just told, is kind of this little theme of repentance. Because when the lost things are found, Jesus says, there is joy in heaven when one comes to repentance. So the assumption here is that when these things are returned and restored, they've also changed their posture towards their owner. Just like we change our posture and repentance towards God. Now, I don't want to give a lot of intro here to these parables, but it's probably worth looking at at least the why Jesus told these parables, and you can see that in verses 1 through 2. We find here that there's a certain narrative that's taking place in the first century around Jesus. Now, listen carefully. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So here's the... What do you want to call it? Here's the narrative that people are talking about when Jesus is ministering to tax collectors and sinners. They're saying something like this. If he was really from God, he would never associate with people that offend God. If he was really from God, 
There are some people that are just outside of the reach of grace. We know who they are. And therefore, Jesus would not be found with them. And since Jesus is found with them, especially in intimate table fellowship, obviously Jesus cannot be the Messiah. It's a very similar story, by the way, in Luke chapter 7. There's a prostitute there in Nain. That's the name of the town. She's the, the woman in Nain. And she's considered a moral outcast. She is outside of the reach of redemption, outside of the reach of grace. There's a Pharisee named Simon that invites Jesus to his house. The Pharisees, of course, are a very self-righteous group. And as the story goes, the woman walks in and she's just overwhelmed, her tears, she's anointing Jesus. And, um, you know, Jesus touches the woman, the woman touches him. And Simon the Pharisee, they're thinking in their hearts, if he knew who this woman was, he would never allow this woman to touch him the same thing that they're thinking in this passage. Jesus would never associate with people like that. Those people have sinned away their day of grace. That's the concern in Luke 15. These people don't understand because Jesus is on a mission for God. The actions of Jesus are actually very much in line with the mission of God, which is to seek and to save that which is lost, and of course to have celebration. So today we're going to look at these first two parables. I just want to familiarize you with them if you don't know. First one is the lost sheep. Jesus says, verse 4, suppose one of you, right? So when he says suppose one of you, what that means is this. It means I'm going to give you a regular story, and if you were the shepherd, you'd probably do the same thing, right? This is a normal shepherd action. Not unusual for a shepherd to leave the 99 and go find the one. We've got a shepherd with a flock of 100. That's a pretty good flock in the first century, you're at least going to have some hired help. And so presumably, when the one gets lost, he leaves, the shepherd leaves the 99 with a family member or some kind of hired help, and then he goes off and pursues the one. When he finds, and this is going to be important later, he takes the sheep, he puts it over his shoulders, and walks the sheep back and restores it to the flock. Don't miss the theme of being restored back to the community in these three parables, by the way. Very important. When God restores us, he doesn't just restore us individually, he restores us corporately, one to another. The second one is the lost coin. It's a drachma. This would be a day's wage in the first century. Uh, But for a poor woman like this, this is a big deal. Can't just lose a day's wage. Uh, Some people believe, by the way, since there were ten coins um, and one of them was lost, that it's referring to a headdress in the first century. Married women had this. Some married women would wear these headdresses, and the coins were kind of linked together with a chain. And it's possible that this is a married lady that has one of those, and one of the coins falls off. Of course, the floors there in the first century are just earth and dirt. Very hard to find a coin. Coins were not round, by the way, as much as they are today. They kind of shaved off edges and people would trim the edges in the marketplace anyway and kind of take them down a little bit for the melt. But this thing uh, hits the ground and she doesn't know where it is. So she takes a broom. Uh, a broom would be like some palm branches or something kind of sweeps around. Of course, the problem is the more she sweeps, what happens? Probably the more the coin gets lost. So it's really tough to find the coin. But she does find the coin and like the shepherd, there's rejoicing. So I want to give you about six thoughts on Jesus and the mission of God. And the first one is this. Jesus here assumes there is a certain lostness or fall of humanity. Both of our parables start with a presupposition. Something has been lost that needs to be recovered. Now, this is one of those things where I don't understand why people don't agree with Christians. There are some things we believe, and I completely understand why people don't agree with Christians unless you have faith. 
But I kind of agree with the theologian Richard Niebuhr who said, the, the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine in the Christian faith. In other words, it's probably the only thing that you can agree with just by looking at the evidence in the world. You can't get to the resurrection purely on rational thought. It takes faith. But I think you can get to the fallenness of humanity just with logic thought. There's a great line from Herman Melville in Moby Dick, heaven, heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterian and pagan alike, for we are all desperately cracked about the head in need of mending. You know, Jesus here is presupposing that people are lost, and yet we come so hard to this truth as people. He presupposes people are lost. Now, let me say this. In Christianity, you can confess your sin and your fallenness openly. If you're a religious person, by religion I mean you believe that God loves you a little bit more when you're a good person, you cannot have the freedom to confess the fallenness that you have because that's how you store up moral capital. That's how you gain God's favor. So you can't confess it. You actually have to hide it. In religion, the goal is to hide as much fault as you possibly can. And that, of course, builds very superficial communities. In Christianity, the goal is to share that freely with God and, frankly, some of it to one another. Now, don't get me wrong. We should not glory in our brokenness. And I think that can sometimes happen. Almost like, well, I'm more broken than you. Yeah, I'm more screwed up than that guy over there. You know, And therefore, we like glory. That becomes a strange form of self-righteousness, doesn't it? We don't glory in our brokenness, but we certainly confess it because our righteousness is in Christ, it's not in ourselves. So number one, Jesus is going to assume a certain lostness or a certain fallenness of humanity. Second thing we might say, the parables here are going to presuppose, all three of them, by the way, they presuppose that people are valuable to God regardless of the condition that they are in. Uh, In our morning study today, I think it was Pascal who was quoted, that people, human beings, are both the glory and the garbage of the universe. That's powerful, isn't it? (laughs) Don't forget the glory part. You know, we look around and we see kind of the mess that we make, you know, relationally and just in the world, but we often forget what glory we are because we are created in God's image. And God, we sometimes feel that God only cares about people that have it all together. That crosses my mind, and it shouldn't. That crosses your mind, and it probably shouldn't. And I think one of the reasons that we think God only cares about people that have it all together, frankly, is because we usually only care about people that have it all together. We want to be around successful people. We want to be around strong people. We want to be around healthy people. We want to be around people that we deem make good choices. We want to be around people that we think uphold a certain moral standard, similar to ours, whatever that moral standard might be. But the kicker in the parable is so powerful. People are valuable to the owner regardless of the position or situation they are in. The sheep is not valuable because he's stuck by the shepherd's side. The sheep is valuable because he belongs to the shepherd. And I would say, if anything, God is more burdened for the wanderer, apparently, than even the pack at this moment. People are valuable regardless of the condition they're in. There's that great verse in Exodus 7, or 3 rather, where the people of Israel are crying out in pain. And the text says something like, I heard their suffering and I was, uh, and I was concerned about them. That's one translation. God hears their suffering and he's concerned about them. 
And you're thinking something like this. You're thinking, yeah, when my child suffers, I'm concerned about them. Don't think that. That's the wrong illustration. At this moment, these people are not really that close to God. Many of them have completely forsaken the way of the fathers, most of them. They are bound up in the exact same idolatry as the people of Egypt. They're doing the same things. You know that crazy stuff we hear about? Stuff that you say, I can't even believe that took place. I don't just mean like running around worshiping this and that or maybe worshiping cows. I'm talking about like even human sacrifices, just things that you find outside of the plausibility structure. That's the stuff they did in the ancient world. Don't think Israel wasn't bound up in that when they were in Egypt. That's the whole point of the plagues. God is taking the Egyptian gods and using them against Egypt for the glory of his people. Israel is basically functional Egyptians. And it is precisely at that moment, regardless of their condition, that God loves them. And they're valuable to God, not because they're whole, not because they're good people, despite who they are and what they've done. In a couple chapters, Jesus is going to walk into a city called Jericho. And there's going to be a little tax collector. They're actually an extortionist. His name is Zacchaeus. Apparently, he's a short guy. He climbs up a tree to see Jesus. This guy is a white-collar criminal. This guy takes advantage of people financially that can't take care of themselves. That is an absolute abomination in the law of God. And when Jesus walks into that city and he sees Zacchaeus up in the tree, hundreds of people over here, a thousand people over here, he pauses. Zacchaeus? Come on down. I'm dining with you today. That is God reaching out to a man despite his broken condition. Maybe you prefer the woman at the well. Where the woman at the well has committed all kinds of ethical and moral problems in her community. She's on the next uh, person. One person after another. Used and abused and Poor woman's had a lot of trouble in life, but don't get me wrong. She's caused a lot of problems too. Jesus meets her at the well, right where she is. And what does he do? He reaches out to her. Her life has changed. Don't ever think that Jesus came to seek and save that which is whole. He didn't. He came to seek and save that which is lost. You, listen to me, please. You are valuable to God regardless of the condition you are in regardless of the mess that you are in. I'm going to take a step further. Regardless of the mess that you caused this week in someone else's life, you are valuable to God. You reflect his image. God cares deeply about your moral, spiritual, emotional, even your physical condition. God cares. Number three, God is on a mission to find the wanderer. The wanderer. There's a famous scholar, he's a Jewish scholar, Montefiore, uh, very well versed in a rabbinic literature, frankly more versed than I am in a rabbinic literature. And, and he, he, on this passage, he talks about a misconception that people have. And he says this, he says a lot of people think when they read these parables that, that, that sinners couldn't, let me use language here, the, sinners couldn't come home to God and they do, and that shocks people. In other words, when someone says, wow, I, I want to return to the Lord, I've been far from him, and he receives him back, he says, that's really not a big deal. That's all over the rabbinic literature. 
There are all kinds of stories in rabbinic literature when people wander away from God, even much worse than we have in these three parables, and they come back and God receives them and they're restored to God and to the community. That is old hat. That is not, there's no shock value in these parables at all in regard to that. Montfiore says the shock value is not that God's receiving people back. The shock value is that God is pursuing people while they're wandering. That's the shock value. And that's what you don't find in the rabbinic literature. And frankly, you don't find it anywhere else. The shocker is the shepherd seeks out the sheep. He puts the sheep on his shoulders and brings it home. That the woman actually sweeps the house looking for the coin. That's the pursuit of God. I know there's some that feel like we're too far to be reached by God. But here, Jesus is loving the unlovely. God is loving the wanderer. And I think it's worth saying that God is pursuing people not just to make friends with them, although I'm sure that's true. God is pursuing people to transform them and restore them. And that's what he wants to do in my life. That's what he wants to do in your life. That's what he wants to do in your neighbor's life. And as God pursues people, he is pursuing not just communities, but individuals. Not just families, but individuals. It's another shocker in this parable that God is dealing with individual sheep and individual coins. This is not the parable of the lost flock. It's not the parable of the lost piggy bank. It's the parable of the lost sheep. It's the parable of the lost coin. It's not the parable of the lost family. It's the parable of the lost son. God is pursuing individuals. He has a heart for the individual. Number four, the owners go through extraordinary lengths to pursue and welcome back that which was lost. So the theme here is the owner. That's God is the creator. Again, we're special to God because we are created in God's image. And God is willing to go through great, great lengths to pursue us. I was thinking about the silver coin here. It's about a day's wage, modest sum of money, but very important to the woman because she probably doesn't have a lot of money. She takes that broom, the palms that are kind of tied together. It's not the kind of coin that's going to roll under a couch or something like that, but it's lost there in the earth somewhere, maybe under some dust, maybe a quarter inch under. And she sweeps the entire house looking for it. And the key is she will not stop until she finds that coin. And God does this for us. This is the cross. He will take extraordinary measures to seek people. Even his own death on the cross through Jesus Christ. That's the love he has. God still pursues us today, doesn't he? Not just in the cross. He did that in the cross. It's the grand expression. You know how else he pursues? He speaks to our hearts. Kind of disrupts us a little bit. Surprises us with joy. Works through other people. So many ways that God works to help us and remind us to turn back to him. God is both the owner in the parables, get this, and the redeemer. You know what that means? Let me tell you what it means. It means like this. There was a little boy once. A little boy grabbed some metal, and he grabbed some paper, and he grabbed some sticks, and he began to construct a little, little model sailboat. And he took some measures and put it together over the course of a couple of days. He glued it all together, kind of tied it real tight, 
And he loved this little boat. It was like something he constructed himself. First time in his life. So proud of that. He'd walk downtown with it kind of under his arm like this. And he'd go up to the little, the little park there where he'd put it in the water. And it would just kind of float out. He had a little string attached to it, you know. It would kind of blow out. Then he'd pull it back. And oh, he just doted over that little boat. And one day, it kind of goes out and the string slips out of his hands. It goes under a bridge. And as it's going under the bridge, the little boy is full of anxiety. He's not going to get this little boat back. And soon enough, he discovers, he runs on the other side of the bridge. This is nowhere to be found. He searches and searches, and he can't find it. And there he is, two weeks later, walking down Main Street. And he walks by the pawn shop. There's that little boat right in the window. Somebody found it and sold it to the pawn shop. So what does he do? He goes in and says, that's my boat. To which the owner says, you're going to have to pay for that. And this little boy goes home and scrounges together everything he possibly can. He starts selling things to the neighborhood kids to get a few bucks to go buy this boat. And he walks in and he grabs that boat. He pays for it. And he sticks it under his arm and he's walking down the street. And he looks at that little boat and he said, I created you and I bought you. You are doubly mine. (laughs) He is the creator He is the purchaser and a rescuer. And you know, he looks at us today and says, you are are doubly mine. And that's the kind of God we serve. It's the kind of God that's rescuing us. The fifth point is a tough one. I'm going to warn you in advance. I don't know of better language than this, forgive me. God may pursue people under some duress. And I don't mean him, I mean you and me. (laughs) You know, what's interesting in the parable of the sheep and you don't, this is one of those things that once you're told, you can't get it out of your mind. You ever have that? You ever have like, you know, there used to be an elm tree out here, and elm trees have died. And, can, and once, one day someone said, that's an elm tree. And every single time I passed it by, I'm like, oh, that's the elm tree. You know, once you see it. Here's what will be pointed out to you about this parable of the lost sheep, and you'll never get it out of your mind. And it's this. The, the, the problem with the sheep is not necessarily that the sheep is lost. It's that he's getting more lost. And there's a disorientation taking place. That's what the shoulder theme is all about. If you notice, you're thinking to yourself, well, why doesn't the shepherd just kind of touch the sheep and the sheep follows him back to the flock? That seems much more reasonable than throwing a sheep on the shoulders. And the reason is because the sheep is agitated. The sheep ain't following the shepherd. The sheep is spiraling out of control. And therefore, the shepherd has to take the sheep and put him on the shoulders. There is some kind of tension or duress here in the parable. The shepherd's carrying the sheep back to the fold because the sheep still will not follow the shepherd. He's agitated. He's pushing against the shepherd. And that's the picture here. That as the shepherd finally sees the sheep and walks up to him, you know what the sheep doesn't do? Doesn't turn around and go, I've been looking everywhere for you. No, the sheep starts to run further. You ever try to chase your stray dog? That happened to me, you know. I got this little beagle. And I go and I see him and it's, he never looks at me and goes, I've been looking everywhere for you. What does he do? Some of you know, you see me on Facebook, you know. It's like, Phew, he's gone. They get further agitated, you know. That's what happens. See, we've all been in life where situations get bad to worse. And we're called to stay close to the shepherd. We're called to stay close to the flock. And when we don't, we become further agitated, even less purpose. 
And God comes to pursue us. In that first touch of God, rarely do we look at him and go, thank you so much, I've been waiting for this. Normally, there's a lot of duress, stress. The wandering sheep is not happy. Not at first. So we say things like, God, I don't want you to interfere in my life. I don't want you anywhere near me. You're not going to coerce me. You're not going to tell me what to do. And even though God is pursuing us and working on our hearts, we're constantly fighting against that. That joy doesn't come to the sheep right away until he or she is restored. Number six, there is a repentance and a homecoming. And you see that in all the parables. Verse seven, more joy in heaven than one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who need no repentance. Verse 10, so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner that repents. I won't spend much time on this because we'll talk about it with a lost son. Repentance is turning away from our own way and turning to God. Sometimes it's kind of a small thing. At least it seems that. There's an attitude, you turn away from the attitude. There's a behavior you turn away from. Sometimes it's a big thing. It's a complete turning you know, of everything you have. Whether it's big or whether it's small, it's changing our posture towards God. And the sheep and the lost coin, that's what's happening. There's a change of posture where there's agitation with the owner and then there's restoration. Last point here, number seven. The joy of God. God is anything except reluctant to receive you back up into his arms. That's the joy motif. And you find it in all three. The shepherd rejoices. The woman rejoices, and what else happens? You know the story of the prodigal son. The father and the home rejoice. This is completely unexpected, this kind of joy. It's a big surprise in the third parable, but boy, you get it here too. I'll give you a verse to think about this week. Malachi 7.18, Who is like you, God, who pardons sin and forgives transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight. Hear it? Delight to show mercy. What does that mean? You know what delight means? Cool, cool Hebrew word here. It means it's a desire that people have. You know, like you like something to eat, you might delight in that. You're not reluctant to eat it. You like your job, you're not reluctant to go. You like going to the theme park, you're not reluctant to go to that. God is not reluctant to receive people back. He's not standing there with his arms like this and just you know, angry faced at us saying, oh, you come through here, you're going to have to you know, pay me twice. The father in the parable is not telling the kid he's got to stay outside on the porch for a couple of nights to do penance. God is not reluctant to receive us back. He delights in showing mercy. And I can tell you today, friend, God delights in showing mercy to us. Regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you do, God delights in showing mercy to us. He is not reluctant. He is not just willing, but he's excited when people turn towards him. So here's the question. Where are you? Where are you in your walk with God? Have you ever crossed that line of faith? Why not come today? If you're wandering from God, why not come back? Here the shepherd has you on his shoulders. He's bringing you back. He's not doing it to mess your life up. He's doing it out of his great love, Jesus and the mission of God. Father, thank you for your grace and your love. Bless us, keep us, help us to walk with you. In Christ's name, amen.